This morning, we're actually going to start a series. Uh, It's a series of sermons. It could actually easily take us into the new year. We're going to start going through this letter of 1 Timothy. And uh, and then we might get on to Titus and 2 Timothy after that. We'll we'll see how we get on. Um, These three books together, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, they form what together are called the pastoral letters because they contain instructions to Timothy and to Titus on how they should pastor the churches that they were overseeing. And uh, at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is in, uh, was under house arrest in Rome, but that wasn't the end of his life or the end of his ministry. He was released from Rome And he began what was to be his fourth missionary journey. And he took in the island of Crete, where he left Titus to oversee the church there. And he also took in Ephesus on that journey. And as Paul left Ephesus to continue on to Macedonia, he left Timothy to bring oversight and teaching to the the growing church there in Ephesus. And it seems that Paul had originally intended to return quite quickly to be with Timothy in Ephesus. But it became increasingly apparent that he was going to be delayed. And so instead he wrote this letter that we have as as 1 Timothy. And he wrote it to Timothy to encourage him in the work that he'd left him to do. Now I know that John's been wanting to preach into this letter for for a number of months now. We just feel that the the time is right now to kick off this series. And uh, I'm sure we'll say more about that. Uh, Not not next Sunday, so we've got Guy with us, Guy Miller with us next Sunday. But the week after that, I'm I'm sure John will say more about that. We do plan to work through 1 Timothy quite carefully. Not necessarily verse by verse, but, uh, but probably more thoroughly than we did through Luke, for example, when we tended to sort of jump whole bits at a time. There's loads of excellent stuff in 1 Timothy to cover. And uh, there's stuff on the gospel, there's stuff on worship, men's roles and women's roles, church oversight, social responsibility, attitudes to material wealth, and so on. But this week, I just felt it was right to bring something really by way of introduction Something that covers the the whole of of 1 Timothy. I want to sort of set the scene and uh, give you a a broad context that underpins all these kind of pastoral issues that are addressed in this letter. See, when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there was really one predominant burden that was on his heart. And that was that the life of a Christian... And the life of the church should be based on a certain knowledge and an application of the truth. It was the truth that was his main concern. If 1 Timothy was a stick of rock, the word that would be written through it is that word, truth. And to be the person that God wants you to be, for us to be the the church... That God wants us to be. It's essential that you know what God wants you to know. Because right knowledge leads to right actions. And right actions make us the victorious people of God that he would have us be. Now, 
Obviously, we haven't got time to read the whole letter this morning, but can I encourage you to do that? Perhaps over the the next week or two, just take the time to read through 1 Timothy from end to end. It's only six chapters. It won't take you very long, but it will help you as we start this series to get the, the big picture of what Paul was trying to convey as he wrote to Timothy. But let me just pick out some verses now as, as I just read through. That I just want to pick out verses that show you how Paul keeps returning to this theme of truth. But let's start at the beginning, shall we? In 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Skip forward then to chapter 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Chapter 3 then, verse 14. Verse 14, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Chapter 4, then verse 11. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And then let's jump right to the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. There's a a fundamental question that seems to be a, a popular subject for debate these days, and that is this question, what is truth? And that's, of course, the question that Pilate asked Jesus when, uh, when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion. In fact, Paul reminds Timothy of that scene 
with Jesus in front of Pilate in, uh, in 1 Timothy 6. But in our society today, people have lost the answer to that question. What is truth? You could have stood on Winchester High Street for the last 2,000 years and asked people walking past that question and you'd have got a pretty good answer. But ask people in the last 20 years and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm not really sure. Or more likely they'll say, well, that's private. What is truth? That's, that's up to me. Mind your own business. Well, I don't want to get too philosophical this morning, but I think it's helpful to explore this slightly. I want to make three comments about truth. And the firstly, the first comment is there is only one truth. I think it's helpful to explore this slightly. The traditional view of truth, in fact the biblical view of truth, has been completely unquestioned for hundreds of years. I'm sure it will be the view of most people in this room, which is good. It's now got a name. It's now called the correspondence view of truth. And that means that something is only true if it corresponds to factual reality. Factual reality is, is the way things exist. It's the way things are. And statements that agree with the way things are, are true. They tell it like it is. I could tell you that there is a shed in my garden, and that would be true because there, there simply is. The factual reality of the situation is there is a shed in my garden. If I told you there was no shed in my garden, it wouldn't disappear. It wouldn't cease to exist. Because my statements don't change factual reality. I would simply be telling you something that was untrue. Now you might think that all sounds ridiculously obvious. Well, I hope it does really. But there is an increasing move in our culture away from the correspondence view of truth. And towards what is known as the relativistic view of truth. And that means that truth is relative to you and your situation. So what is true for you is not necessarily true for someone else. And the factual reality of the situation is considered to be irrelevant. And the very worst thing that you can say to a person is that they are wrong. So I might say confidently that Jesus is Lord. In fact, I do say that confidently. But if I was to have a relativistic view of truth, and someone was to say to me, well, I think Allah is Lord. Or I think there is no God. Then if I had that relativistic view of truth, I would have to shrink back and say, well, of course, I understand. You see things differently. That's okay. I read just last week that the, the World Evangelical Alliance is currently in talks with other world faiths to come up with a, a code of conduct for Christians to say how Christians should talk about their faith without causing offence to Muslims and Buddhists and other religions. Now, 
I don't want to prejudge that too strongly because I haven't come up with these guidelines yet. I don't know exactly what they're going to say. And, uh, and there is a need for wisdom to know how to build church in, in, say, Muslim nations. But I do find it all quite worrying when Christians get together with people with, from other religions and say, well, this is our truth. What's, what's your truth? How, how can we all get on? See, it's relativistic view of truth. We say, well, there is no absolute truth. You just make up your own mind. But that's not what Paul says to Timothy. He says, make no mistake. There is one truth. And it's the same for everybody. It's sound doctrine. And you must hold on to that truth. There were those people in the church in Ephesus who were bringing some other message. They took a different view. But the Bible never says that they were bringing alternative truth. It's quite clear they were speaking lies, false doctrine. And so we need to be sure. We need to be sure what we believe in. There is only one truth. It's the God of the Bible. The God who loves all people of the world. Whatever their religion or belief, but the God who made only one way by which people can be saved. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God's own Son, who became a man to suffer and die as payment for their sins. So that's the first comment. There is only one truth. The second comment I would make is that there is no truth outside of God. Not only is there only one truth, there is no truth outside of God. And again, I think it's important that we just have this so clear in our minds. It helps you stand on a, on a firm foundation. Because it's one thing to agree in your mind that there is an objective body of truth. Or if you like, there's one big set of statements and facts that describe the way things are. But that kind of truth is, is an awesome thing. It's huge. And the question is, where is God in that? Well, when the Bible talks about truth, or sound doctrine, or, or the true faith, it's not referring to something that is larger than God himself. Just see, philosophically, there is no body of knowledge or body of truth that encompasses God. There's no list of facts, however large, that includes facts about God as a subsection and says this, this is the truth about God. Because it is God himself who is infinite. If truth as a concept was larger than God, then we would worship the truth. But that's not how it is. When you read the Bible, you can draw only one conclusion. Truth is not larger than God. Truth is not smaller than God. In fact, truth is God. God is truth. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, God is referred to as the God of truth. Elohim, Amen. I love that name for God. Elohim, Amen. God of truth. Imagine a list of facts that describes everything. A list of statements that describe everything in the physical world. 
and everything in the, the spiritual realm. It's a list that just stretches off to infinity. But what you end up with is not a, a list of facts at all. You don't end up with a, a doctrine or a philosophy. What you end up with is the person of God himself. David Atkinson said, far from being a theoretical concept, truth in the Bible is personal. It's God. Or to put it another way, there is no area of science that you can study that is outside of the realm of God's truth. There is no branch of psychology or art or mathematics that takes you beyond God's remit. There really is no truth outside of God because he is the God of truth. And it's God in all the persons of the Trinity. In Isaiah 65, we have the God of truth, God the Father. Most clearly, of course, we've got the words of Jesus. In, uh, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. God didn't say, Jesus didn't say, I speak the truth. He didn't say, I agree with the truth, like the truth was some higher authority. No, he said, I am truth. Truth and Jesus, one and the same thing. The Holy Spirit, too, is repeatedly referred to as the spirit of truth, particularly in John's Gospel. In all aspects of God, throughout the Trinity, there is complete truth. And the best way to think of it is that God and truth are one and the same thing. In him there is no falsehood whatsoever. And of course that means that everything he says is truth, completely truthful. And he's 100% faithful, consistent and dependable. It's all quite awe-inspiring, really. But there's one more thing to say about truth. One more comment I would make. And this is perhaps the most amazing thing of all. Because truth is infinite, as God is infinite. Seemingly so far out of our grasp with our our kind of limited brains and our, our, our weakness. And yet, and this is the thing, God has made it so that he reveals his truth to you. He has made it so that you can understand truth. He declares his truth to you. Let me read you some verses from Isaiah 45. These should come up on the the screen, I hope. Isaiah 45, just from the end of, of verse 18. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay, so there is no other God. There is no other truth. It's just him. And then he goes on. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I've not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And you can come to God today with with no knowledge of your own. Maybe you've not had a great deal of teaching in the past. Maybe you're still finding out about God. We're all in that position to some extent or other. But if you approach him, if you seek him, He will reveal his truth to you. Because God doesn't want to be hidden. He doesn't want people to seek him in vain. He created you to have a relationship with you. A relationship not based on ignorance, 
but based on knowledge, based on things you know to be true. And of course, God's word, the Bible, is is absolutely fundamental to this. This is God's revealed truth to you. And because it comes from God, the Bible is itself truth and entirely consistent with God himself. Now, the Bible is not all of truth because there are some things even the Bible doesn't tell you, like what is heaven like and and how does the Trinity work and, and stuff like that. But the Bible is everything you need to know, this side of glory, to be the man of God or the woman of God that he would have you be. So God not only is truth, but through the pages of the Bible, he speaks the truth to you. So, there is such a thing as truth. That truth exists in God, God alone. God has revealed his truth to you, particularly through the Bible, so that you can know it and understand it. Let's go on to consider then the effects, the effect that a knowledge of God's truth should have on you and should have on the life of the church. Well, when you immerse yourself into God's truth, it's impossible to stay the same. And that's the way it should be. You're not meant to just know about God or know what it says in the Bible. That knowledge should affect the way you live. In fact, there are three consequences listed in Scripture that are attributed directly to having a knowledge of the truth. Truth will set you free, it will prepare you for battle, and it will lead you into godliness. So firstly then, the truth will set you free. Let's uh, read this uh, familiar verse from, from John 8, verse 31. Jesus says this, If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. God's truth is revealed to you nowhere more perfectly than in the person of Jesus Christ. And you need to hold on to Jesus' teaching. Jesus was speaking here to Jews who had just believed what Jesus was telling them, and it's It's difficult to say whether they had actually come to a saving faith. But the verse would kind of imply that they had because there is a time element here in what Jesus was saying. He says to them, you need to go on with my teaching. Hold on to it. Don't just get saved and forget it. Rather abide in me. That Greek word that's used there for hold on. It's the word meno. It's used at the end of the book of Acts, that same word. And where it's used in Acts, it describes the scene where Paul was on a boat and the boat ran aground on a a sandbar. And it says that the bows of the ship stuck fast in the mud and they wouldn't move. Whatever they did, they just couldn't shift the boat out of this mud. And it uses that word, hold on, meno. Well, that's how you should be with God's word. That's how you should be with Jesus' teaching, which you can take to mean the whole of the Bible. Don't give up. Don't let go. Keep reading your Bible. Keep studying it. Keep drilling the depths. Keep on hearing God's word preached to you. Because the result of that kind of tenacious 
attitude to God's word is that you will embark on a process. In fact, that's Jesus' promise to you. A right handling of the truth will lead to a right knowledge of the truth. You will know the truth. And a right knowledge of the truth will lead you to an ever-increasing experience of freedom in your life. The truth will set you free. The freedom that Jesus was talking about to the Jews was freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the law. The law gave them rule after rule on how to live to be accepted by God, but actually only ever showed them how completely unable they were to keep those rules. Well, Jesus was offering them freedom from the law, and he wants you to have the same freedom. Jesus has abolished the law with its commandments and and regulations. Sin is no longer your master. If you're a Christian, you've given your life to him. You're accepted by God because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. Because of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. His power available to you each day. Jesus offers you this freedom. But do you feel that you are experiencing that freedom that Jesus promises? Maybe you do in some ways, but there's other ways that you know, it, it just doesn't seem to be happening. Maybe there's some sin that keeps coming back into your life and you just can't seem to deal with it. Maybe you're just persistently feeling tired or, or low or, or angry. Maybe it's that you even have had these things prayed for once, but it, it didn't seem to help or it's come back since. Well, you need to know that God is interested in your walk with him. And he's not always into the quick fixes like we are. You see, there is a time element here. He wants you to hold on to him and go on holding on. And the freedom that you desire, I believe, will be yours because Jesus promises it to you. But it will come to you from a knowledge of the truth and an application of that truth to your life as you receive it by faith. And that comes from holding on to Jesus, holding on to God's word, refusing to let go. It's the truth that brings freedom. And all this false doctrine that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy, all this meaningless talk and godless chatter, none of that brings freedom. So don't listen to that stuff. Don't don't give your time to such things. That would be teachings, opinions that don't agree with the Bible. Other kind of wacko philosophies. It would mean other sorts of lies and gossip. Don't waste your time on that stuff. It will do you no good. Spend your time in the truth. And the truth will set you free. Secondly then, truth will prepare you for battle. Ephesians 6, verse 12 to 14, say this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. You know, there is a war on over your life and over the life of this church. And you know from scripture and and often just from the experiences of life that the devil and his armies never miss an opportunity to land an attack on you, to hinder the purposes of God or to halt the advance of God's kingdom. There are really many positive things going on in the church at the moment. I'm really quite excited. It takes me quite a lot to get excited. Um, But I would say I'm at least on the verge of being excited at the moment. God is really doing a lot in in the church at the moment. And I just feel that we've come out of the summer and and we've hit September and we're in good shape. That's what I feel. And it's, it's great what's going on. We've had a good prayer week, seen our children's work launch into a new season with Brook Street Kids. I just can sense God in that. And I think our picnic last week was just fantastic, just to be together and uh, have lunch together on the park. We now gather momentum towards the Alpha Party, Mark Ritchie, the Alpha Course. We've got the new student term with our students back with us. We've got a new season for our youth with with Emerge, their new name and and new plans for this month. And that's really just scratching the, the surface. There are many excellent things happening. But I don't think it's a coincidence that as elders we've all felt an increased level of spiritual attack over the church as well. There have been pastoral issues, illnesses, just unwanted complications. If you were here last Sunday evening, you would have heard John just share at the prayer meeting last Sunday. It's it's actually been quite a tough time for us personally. Now, we don't need to be fearful about that. We're not fearful. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We trust in God. We don't need to be fearful, but we do need to be ready. And here in Ephesians, we're told to put on the whole armour of God in order to take an effective stand against the enemy. I'm sure you know that the spiritual armour that we need is related metaphorically to the armour that a Roman soldier would have worn. And the very first item mentioned is the belt of truth. Now, a soldier's belt was obviously, well, it was a belt. It was a big piece of leather that went round his waist. But there was nothing ornamental or decorative about the soldier's belt. It was an essential piece of kit. Because the soldier wore a kind of undergarment or a robe. And that would have been very long and loose-fitting and, and quite comfortable, actually. But before the soldier went into battle, he would take the folds of this robe and tuck them into his belt and make sure that it was all secured tightly because if he didn't do that, it would just be disaster. He could have the the sharpest sword in the world. He could have the latest titanium armour. But if his robes were all flapping around his feet, as soon as he tried to run or tried to fight, he would fall over, trip over, be on his face and that would be it. So the very first thing he did, the foundation really for the whole armour, was to put on his belt. And so the very first thing you need to do to prepare yourself for the spiritual battles ahead is to put on the belt of truth. 
That's what truth does. It prepares you for battles. It makes you stand up tall. Pull your your tummy in and, and be ready. So make sure you know the truth. And you're able to distinguish from God's one truth and false doctrine. This is about knowing God's word in your own heart, in your mind, letting it feed your spirit. You see, another essential part of the armour is is the the sword of the spirit, which which is the word of God. And that's taking the words of scripture and, and using those words to forcibly take ground from the enemy. But this, this is about being sure. It's about knowing what you know. And standing firmly yourself on the truth of Scripture. And you need to do this before you feel the heat of battle. See, the soldier doesn't begin to put his belt on and and the rest of his armour once he's there at the battle line. It would be too late then. He gets ready when he's back in camp. When he's relaxed. The birds are singing and, and everything's rosy. He gets ready for the battle. And so you need to be clear on the truth of God's word before the devil's attack is directed at you. Before some crisis hits you or life gets more difficult for some reason. Be ready for action. Don't get caught with your pants around your ankles. I truly can't keep myself reading Christian books. Just reading quality stuff that that feeds me. The the books I enjoy the most are, are the ones on... Uh, apologetics, I've got to say. I love books that make a defence for, for the Christian faith. I love books on creation and, and a biblical view of science and, and that sort of stuff. It's, it's personal. I, I was at a leadership training last, uh, yesterday with Arnold Bell, who's one of the main teachers in New Frontiers. And uh, he said to me, well, he said to everybody, he said, uh, don't spend too long reading apologetics because you shouldn't need to convince your mind and, and all this kind of thing. And I thought, oh... I already knew I was going to say I love reading apologetics. But I do. I, I just find those, those books are, are, are good. It's not the only thing you should read, those kind of defence of the Christian faith books. Read all sorts of stuff. Read stuff that just points you to God and, and reveals his character to you. Because those sort of things will do you good. They will, they will put truth within you. And uh, those things, they feed your soul. They make you think, oh yeah, I I now know why I believe this stuff. It actually makes good sense. So I I encourage you to to read good quality Christian books as much as you can. So when the devil's attack comes to you, you will be ready. You will have girded your loins. That's literally what that means. Girding your loins, putting on the belt, tucking your robe in. You will be ready, ready for action. Then the third effect that truth will have on you personally is that it will lead you into godliness. Paul's letter to Titus starts like this. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. See, as well as leading you into freedom... And preparing you for battle, a proper knowledge of biblical truth will also change you step by step into something 
that more closely represents the character of God. Because God is acutely interested in your holiness. He says, be holy because I am holy. And so the Christian life is rightly a process of becoming less like the sinful world around you and more like God. It's what the Bible calls being sanctified or set apart. And it's the truth that will get you there. When Jesus prayed to his disciples in John 17, he didn't pray to his disciples, he prayed for his disciples. He prayed for his disciples in John 17. He said to God, sanctify them by the truth. Clearly God's truth is not meant to stay in your head, it's meant to have an impact on your life. And in fact, that's a pretty good summary of all three pastoral letters. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. A good summary is, know the truth. Get it absolutely straight in your mind and then base the way you live on that truth. So there you are, you're sat at home or wherever. Your Bible is in front of you. How is this book going to lead you into godliness? How is it that truth sanctifies you and has a real tangible effect on your life? Well, you could open up your New Testament. You could start reading the commands of Scripture. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly. So you think, okay, older men, yep, yep, I'll, I'll do that. And then in verse 21, it says, Do nothing out of favouritism. So you think, okay, favouritism, yep, yep, I've got that. And then you read on to, to chapter 6, and it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so you think, right, add that one as well, contentment now. I'm starting to forget the first one. What, what was that again? Just, just remind that. Now, obviously, I'm taking these verses wildly out of context. But the fact is, is that the Bible contains lots of exhortation and instruction on how to live in a certain way. And, and uh, you can view the New Testament as just like a set of rules. You can think, oh, this is how I have to live to be a Christian. Godliness means keeping the rules. Well, although the truth does lead you to godliness, there is an essential stop along the way. And that is worship. You see, without worship, all you are doing is following rules. It's, it's legalism. And Jesus has saved you from that. You're thinking, I must make sure my life measures up. But Jesus didn't come to replace one law with another law. He came to abolish the law, as far as you're concerned. In fact, he fulfilled the law for you. The only way you will get from truth to godliness is via worship. And your first response when you read the truth of Scripture should always be worship. Be captivated by God and and the wonder of his love and and his amazing grace that sent Jesus to the cross for you. So that you could receive salvation from a a place of utter lostness. And as you read scripture and, and as you listen to the truth, always leave room in your heart to respond in worship. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Because once you have that love affair in place. When you read the exhortation of scripture and instruction to live in a certain way, you don't think, well, I suppose I ought to do that as well then. No, you think, I so want to please my Lord. I so want to do what he thinks is right. If he thinks it's right, I think it's right. 
and I want to live that way. The Holy Spirit will prompt you, reveal things to you, give you the power you need to change. It's the truth that leads you to godliness. But only if you first capture a vision of God that leads you to worship him and offer your life to him. So, when you spend time, energy, getting hold of the truth, it has a dramatic, far-reaching effect on your life. Just before I finish, I just want to make one more point. I just want to talk about truth and testimony. You see, this truth is not just for you, it's meant to be declared to the world. In fact, this is the mandate of the church, not only to make sure that we keep this truth ourselves, but make sure that we are declaring truth to the world around us. So Paul writes to Timothy and he says about the church of God, he says it is the pillar and foundation of truth. And I just love that expression. We have a responsibility to be preserving the truth with a strong foundation, but also to be lifting it high on a pillar so that everyone can see it and hear it. If the church doesn't bring the message of truth to the world, then nobody is going to do it. God calls you to bring testimony. Let me give you one more verse. John 15, verse 26 says this. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. The whole idea of testimony, it's exactly like a, a courtroom scene. Just imagine like a, like a criminal court, say. And the whole point of that court is to try and determine the facts of a situation. There is a truth out there and everybody is trying to work out what that truth is and bring it into the light. And so people come forward and they, they bring testimony. They stand in the witness box and they answer questions and hopefully tell the truth. And in effect, they're saying, this is my testimony. I represent truth and I'm bringing truth to you. Well, the Holy Spirit has brought you testimony about God, about Jesus. That's what this verse says. He's revealed truth to you. Jesus has brought you testimony. His whole life was a testimony to the truth about God. He has revealed truth to you. And now you must also testify to that truth. Your whole life, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're with your family, it's all one big courtroom scene and God is on trial. And he calls you to be his witness, to bring accurate testimony of the truth that has been revealed to you. And well, in a world that increasingly doubts this very existence of truth, it becomes increasingly difficult to do that. But it just underlines why we must persevere. We are the pillar and foundation of truth in Winchester. And of course I want you to invite people to Mark Ritchie. Of course I want you to invite people on Alpha. But you know, this is a little bit more than that. This is about actually bringing testimony. Can God rely on you to be a faithful witness of that truth that is put in you? Because that truth will affect your life. It will affect your life as you allow it to. But also we have a responsibility to be declaring that truth to the world. So, that's the context of what Paul writes to Timothy. He says you've got to set up this church right. You've got to act right. 
Because it's, you are representing truth to the world. And as we work our way through 1 Timothy in the coming weeks, let's just bear these things in mind. Let's remember the truth. Hold on to the truth. Make sure your life is a testimony to that precious truth. God, by his grace, has revealed to you. Okay, let's stand together, shall we? Let's just pray. If you have to go and get your kids, please do that. But I just want to pray. Do you know what? I think it would be good to worship. So when we had the worship band up, and even as kids are coming back, they can join with us. But I want us to worship God. Because that's a proper response to, uh, to just this whole subject of truth. Lord, we give you our worship. Lord, we declare that there is one truth, one God, and we worship you this morning. Lord, I just thank you that in all your infinite majesty, you have deemed it in your plan and purpose to reveal your truth to us. You have revealed yourself to us this morning. Lord, we respond to you in worship. Lord, we respond to you with our hearts and say, Lord, we delight in you. We delight in that truth. We delight in your your precepts. And we long to follow you. We long to build our lives upon you. We long to build our church established as a pillar and foundation of that very truth. Lord, take us, I pray, and use us. In the coming weeks, as we we look in some detail at the things that, that, that Paul wanted to say to Timothy to make sure, he said, make sure these things are in the church of Ephesus. Lord, we'd want to learn from that. Because we want to be the, the, the church that you would have us be in, in, in this city, in, in this nation at this time. Bless us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Come speak to us. We pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's, uh, let's worship.